Well, if you have your Bibles with you, we're continuing to work through uh, the armor of God. And we're going to look at the second half of verse 14 and look at the breastplate of righteousness. But let's begin in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Father, would You open this text to us this morning. Would Your Spirit give light to our eyes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to begin by asking two fundamental questions to you, followed by nine kind of more introspective, maybe subjective questions. The first question is this. Do you believe that you are a good person? Do you believe that you are a good person? The second fundamental question is similar. Do you believe people are fundamentally good? Mainly good? Those are the two fundamental questions. The nine introspective questions go like this. Do you find yourself often defending yourself? The second one is like it. Do you find yourself justifying your own actions to other people? Or do you find yourself becoming critical of others to avoid owning your own wrongs? So when you're actually wrong, you find yourself thinking about the wrong the person who's exposing your wrong has and bringing that up. Do you find yourself doing that? Do you find yourself thinking often of what others might be thinking of you? Maybe uh, insecurity. Or being overly self-conscious and therefore it causes you to be socially withdrawn. You know, people call this social anxiety. It's just easier to stay home and not deal with the anxiety that builds around people where I'm thinking about what they're thinking about me. Do you find yourself being overly concerned about what your appearance and reputation is? Do you find yourself carrying around guilt and dread, convinced that God Himself is just about ready to be done with you? 
carrying a guilty conscience. How many days is God actually going to put up with you? Do you find yourself making laws for yourself and for others to follow? Do you, fun do you fundamentally see people, when you look out at the people in Aberdeen, in the United States of America, in the world, do you fundamentally see two groups of people? The good ones and the bad ones. And do you find yourself putting yourself on one of those teams? Those are my questions. If you find yourself answering yes to the questions, especially the first two, do you believe you're a good person? Do you believe people are mainly good? It could be because you actually are not a soldier of Jesus Christ. You've never truly understood the good news regarding the coming of Christ, the work of Christ, His death on the cross, His resurrection, and the accounting you'll have with Him upon His return. You may have never come to the point of despising yourself, lamenting your sin to the point of true repentance, and therefore are still living for yourself and trusting in your own strength rather than Christ. If you answer the question, yes, I think I'm fundamentally good, then I know you don't know the Savior in a saving way. Because a good person doesn't need a Savior. A good person will never place their trust in Jesus Christ. So little children, young people, are you good? Do you think you're good? You see, if you think you're good, then what would you ever need Jesus for? The other nine questions. If you answer yes to those, and if you don't answer yes to them, I question whether you are listening to them. Christians, if you answer yes to those nine questions, the reason why you find yourself feeling those things and answering yes to those questions is probably because you often fail to put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. So my argument is, those nine questions begin to be answered in the negative, answered with no, when you actually are putting on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. If Christ is your righteousness, why do you need to defend yourself? Why do you need to prove that you're good, you see? The second thing I want to do by way of intro is this. I want to give you the Job test, all right? I want to give you the Job test. When I had the privilege to be sent to Niger, Africa for 11 days, 
the church made it possible for myself and Troy Hollinsworth to be able to go, we had several months to prepare uh, for what we would do. And we knew that this wasn't going to be a mission trip where we're merely uh, building a building, but we were actually just taking our Bibles and going into uh, uh, Muslim villages in the middle of the Sahara Desert, telling them we have a message from God, meeting with the imams in those villages, the leaders of those villages, and telling them about the good news of Christ, telling them that God sent this all the way from the United States of America to bring the village good news. And Mark told us, begin to learn how a Muslim thinks. Begin to learn how would be a wise way to share the gospel with uh, someone who is committed to Islam. And I think, by the grace of God, I never even realized this till I got there, uh, the main fundamental way I, I decided to do it was by basically giving the Job test to anyone I was talking to. And the Job test goes like this. My question is, is, do you think you're better than Job? Do you think you're better than him? And I would read the beginning of chapter 1, and here's how it begins. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. The Holy Scripture tells us that this is who Job is. So, so far, would you say you're better than Job? At that point, I'm out. I know that account isn't going to be on my life. And then he says this about him. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters, ten children. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Now, here's what I didn't realize till I got there. Guess what's walking around me all the time? Sheep and donkeys and camels. And I saw the kindness of God. They're going to be able to relate to Job. This is a rich man that has all this livestock. And then you know how Job continues. Now there was a day when the sons of God, these would be angelic beings, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? How do you pass the Job test? This is, this is what God says about Job in his regard when speaking to Satan. And you know what happens. In a moment, in a day, Job loses everything 
he has, all of his livestock, all of his wealth gone. And not only that, all ten of his children dead. Messenger after messenger after messenger, you lost them all. God gave Satan permission. God didn't do anything wrong. Job didn't deserve anything from God. And that's what happened. How did Job respond to that? How, how, how did he respond to this? Then Job rose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. On that day, he worshipped and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Are you better than Job? I asked them that, and they say, No, no man's better than Job. No man's better than Job. It's impossible that he would worship God when that happened. And then Satan says, well, let me touch his flesh. Any man will deny God to his face if I touch his flesh. And so he gets sores all over his body. And finally, his wife comes to him in Job 2.9 and said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. This is his wife saying, I'm sick of this. Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He may have already started sinning in his heart. I don't know. It said he didn't sin the first time, but he didn't sin with his lips at this point. And I asked the question, are you better than Job? Well, you get to Job chapter 9. You might say, well, no one would ever think they're better than Job. Well, Job's friends begin to quickly think that they were better than him. Because these things weren't happening to them in the way they understood the world is bad things happen to bad people and good things happen to good people. But in Job 9, in verse 27, here's what Job says. If I say I'll forget my complaint and put off my sad face and be of good cheer, I become afraid of all my suffering. For I know that you will not hold me innocent. Job says, God, I know that you will not hold me innocent. I shall be condemned. Why then do I labor in vain? I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye. Yet you'll plunge me into a pit and my own clothes abhor me. He says, if I take pure white snow and I wash myself with it and I take soap and I scrub my body and then I put my clothes on, I soil my clothes because I cannot be made clean. 
And then he says this, For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that I should come, or that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. He's saying, put his hand on the holy God and then stand between and put his hand on Job. Job's saying, there's no mediator. There's no one to bridge the gap. And then he wonders what it would be like. He says, let him take his rod away from me and let the dread of him and let not the dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so in myself. We read on that Job does have faith. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. And that he's going to stand in the flesh and see him. But here's the question I would ask. As I would ask, I'd begin by asking them, are you good people? They would all say yes. They would all say yes. They're good. And then I would ask them if they've ever told a lie. And they would say no. Every one of them, real quickly, no. And then I'd ask the friends, do you believe him? And they'd start giggling. They knew they were lying as I'm asking, have you ever told a lie? Have you ever lusted after a woman? I went through all the Ray Comfort stuff with them. And then I give them the Job test. And I said, are you better than Job? They said, nobody's better than Job. And I said, well, here's the deal. Here's what Job knew. Job knew he didn't stand a chance in and of himself to stand before a holy God. And Job was looking for a mediator. And I would ask him, is Allah going to let you into heaven? And they'd say, I hope so. And I would say, is Allah holy? And they would say, yes. And I'd say, is he just? And they would say, yes. And I would say, well, you don't have to wonder. You're not getting in. And then I would tell him about the mediator. I would tell him about the sacrifice. They understood sacrifices. They sacrificed lambs still. And I would ask him, do you have any hope to stand before God without a mediator? By the grace of God, one of the men who I wasn't even looking at, he stood right next to me, 63-year-old man, with tears in his eyes, said, I would never know how sins could be forgiven if you guys didn't come to the village today. He was one of the village elders. So when we ask the question, are you a good person? Well, I just say, just compare yourself to Job. Because Job wasn't good enough to stand before the holy God. Job was looking for Christ, was he not? Job was looking for a God-man. One who could bridge the gap. So children, I want you to think about this. 
Do you have any hope to stand before God in and of yourself, in your sin? Are you always good? You're not, are you? And so what you need is Jesus. What you need is the breastplate of righteousness that we're going to talk about today. So as we look at Ephesians, as we think about the breastplate of righteousness, I just want to remind us of a couple things quickly. The charge of this text is what? Be strong in yourself? No. Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, right? Take up the whole armor of God. Why? Because who's your enemy? The devil? Cosmic powers? Imagine if you got to fight a battle, you got a pistol in your hand, and you're against a tank. All right? It's a fight to the death. How are you going to do? Is the guy with the pistol going to win? He doesn't stand a chance. We live in a world where cosmic powers want to destroy you. The tank is there. Wants to separate you from God. Wants to separate you from your relationships. And Paul says, you need weapons much bigger than what you have in and of yourself. You need armor much greater. And I'm not asking you to win the battle. I'm asking you to stand. Look at the text. Four times. That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13. That you may be able to stand, withstand in the evil day. And at the end of 13... To stand firm. Beginning of 14. Stand therefore. Now when Christ returns, Satan will be thrown into the lake of fire. All of his enemies will be put under his feet. But Christians, we're called to not flinch. We're called to stand. We're called to stand with peace as we face cosmic powers that seek to destroy us. In our, in our main adversary is Satan. That's a Hebrew name that means adversary. Or the Greek term is uh, diabolos, where we get devil, which means accuser and slanderer. And what does the devil do? His, his fundamental weapon is lies, right? And deception. And he tempts us to sin. Satan can't cause you to sin. He tempts us to sin. And then when we sin, what does he do? He becomes the accuser. And Satan is fundamentally called an accuser. He accuses the brethren day and night before the throne of God. So the devil's coming after you, and he's saying, look at your sin. You're scumbag. You have no hope. Death is awaiting you. That's what you're up against. So last week we talked about the belt of truth. Fundamentally, he's saying put on Jesus Christ. For he, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth. We live in a culture that has done away with objective truth. 
There is no truth out there, right? Where's the answers to our questions? What does Bob Dylan say? Blowing in the wind. The existential lie that says there is no answers out there. You make up your own truth. You make up your own reality. But Paul says, put on the belt of truth. The belt is the armor. Everything else buckles into the belt. You carry your weight on your hips, not on your shoulders. Your breastplate, metal breastplate, that's carried by the belt. Your sword goes in your belt. It's the fundamental piece. We can't know about the righteousness of Christ unless we have the truth of God's Word, right? And so today we're going to think about the breastplate. What's the, what's the function of the breastplate? It's to protect the vital organs. It's to protect your heart. It's to protect your lungs. If you get an arrow or a spear or a sword in the vital organs, there is no chance of recovery. There is no chance of recovery. I want you to know this morning the sweet comfort and peace and ability to stand unhindered in the face of Satan and his demons. I want you to know that you can do that all in peace if by faith you'll put on the breastplate of righteousness. See, there's, the, there's a way when Satan comes and says, yeah, I saw that selfishness. You hypocrite. I know you present yourself this way, but I know how you really are. What I'm saying is there's a way that you can stand and not retreat, not flinch in the face of your enemy. And it's if you have the breastplate of righteousness on, if you put on Christ. So my prayer today is that you learn to love the breastplate of Christ's righteousness more and more and understand the practicality of it. My prayer is this. This might sound crazy. I want you to love the imputed righteousness of Christ. Now you're saying, what is that? The imputed righteousness of Christ or the doctrine of imputation. Or foreign righteousness. That's all talking about the same thing. I want you to love it. So that when you leave here, even being honest with yourself, knowing who you are, you leave with joy. Unspeakable. Ready to face the enemy. Now, last week we talked about, there's a debate. When Paul does the armor of God in Ephesians, is his inspiration these Roman guards that he's chained to in the moment? Is that his inspiration? And there's, there's no doubt that the visual helped with this. But I argued that what Paul's thinking of, in, in light of the context, what he's thinking of is the divine warrior in the Old Testament. The divine warrior where... 
the armor of God is actually described by the prophet Isaiah. And you realize the practicality, right? How does Paul set this up? There's cosmic powers much stronger than you that want to destroy you. And his answer is this. You need to climb inside the divine warrior that can actually take on powers that great. All right? We looked at this a little bit last week. I want to show it to you again. Look at Isaiah 59, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn with me. If not, hang with me. I'm telling you, this is peace for your soul. This is comfort in the midst of the battle. All right? Here's what he says. He begins with the fact, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear. First thing he says is, you're going to doubt the Lord's salvation that he can't do it? But here's the problem, verse 2. But your iniquities, that means your sins, have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. This is what sin does. It separates us from God. Makes it so a person can't go to heaven and live in the presence of God because of sin. That's the problem. There's hope at the beginning. Now God's hand's not shortened that it cannot save. But there's a big problem. Your sins have made a separation. And then he lists them all out. We read them last week, right? Verse 3, your hands are defiled with blood, your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. He goes on and on and on and on and on. Verse 15, he says, truth is lacking. He who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. Back in verse 14, he says, truth stumbled in the public square. How's, how's the truth doing right now in the public square? It's stumbling, right? Not much different than Isaiah's day. How about if you're following the Lord? Well, then verse 15 says, he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. They're after you. That was all the way back then as we throw our pity party now, right? But here's what he says in verse 16. He saw that there was no man. That's what Job saw. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. God saw the problem and said, with my own arm, I'm going to bring salvation. Verse 17, he put on righteousness as a breastplate. So when I make the argument, this is what Paul is thinking of. It's because of this verse. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He 
he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. It's a divine warrior bringing salvation. It's a man the people are looking for that can intercede for them according to their deeds so he'll repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies. To the coastlands he'll render repayment. And then in verse 20, and a redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from their transgressions, declares the Lord. And so we see that when Paul says, put on the breastplate of righteousness, he's saying, put on the divine warrior. You're fighting against cosmic powers. You need to, by faith, the way I picture it is climb inside Jesus Christ. He is the one who has power. The Apostle Paul's already told us in Ephesians over every rule and authority and principality and power. Those are demonic powers. So let's ask the question who can enter into heaven? Who can enter into heaven? Psalm 24 gives us this answer, verse 3. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in His holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Is that you? Do you have clean hands and a pure heart? Who's going to enter through those gates in heaven into the presence of His holy place? The rest of the psalm tells us. Verse 7. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift up your and and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. He's the divine warrior. Lift up your heads, O gates, lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And in the words of Paul Washer, for the first time in all of time, those ancient doors opened for a man. And a man walked into the presence of God. Why? He had clean hands, and he had a pure heart, and you don't have them, and I don't have them. And the question is, can I climb into the divine warrior? Can I climb into Christ? Psalm 46 speaks of God's sovereignty. He declares the beginning from the end. He says, I will accomplish all my purpose. It's going to stand. And then he says this in verse 13. This is Isaiah 46, 13. I bring my near my righteousness. It is not far off and my salvation will not delay. I will put in Zion for Israel is my glory. Isaiah is saying, my righteousness is not far off. It's coming to get into heaven. You can't have any sin, but you can't get into heaven being neutral. You also have to have perfect righteousness. Is there any way you can get rid of all your sin and be given perfect 
righteousness. See, to be righteous, you have to live perfectly under the law of God. Jeremiah 23.5 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and execute justice and righteousness in the, in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell security. And this is the name by which he'll be called. Are you ready for it? The Lord is our righteousness. That's his name. How about Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 3? The Spirit of the, of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now Jesus read this in his hometown synagogue, and he said, today it's been fulfilled. Right? He says, this is talking about me. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, uh, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garments of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called, are you ready? This is talking about you and this is talking about me. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. These people are going to be like an oak tree that is not moved, that remains. They'll be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. You will be called oaks of righteousness, but it's going to be because of the planting of the Lord, and you're not going to get glory. God is. Because your righteousness is this branch that was, came from David. It's Jesus Christ. Isaiah 62. My argument is this. This is what Paul has in his mind when he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. For Zion's sake, I'll not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I'll not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. All the nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. And you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken and your land shall no longer be termed desolate. But you shall be called, my delight is in her and your land is married for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Well, how in the world are sinners going to be so beautiful if it's not in the righteousness of Christ? I want to end by giving you an illustration we see from the prophet Zechariah in the fourth vision that he got in Zechariah 
chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is the Joshua no one thinks about. This is Joshua the high priest. All right? Here's what he says. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. So you have Joshua, who's the high priest that's offering sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and you have Satan standing there saying, ah, 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 ah. <laughs> this high priest here, he's a dirty, rotten sinner like the rest of those Israelites. All right? And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Or the Lord has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those that were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he says, behold, I've taken your iniquity away. That means your sins away. And I'll clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. Satan saying, a sinner's here. He was there in dirty, rotten clothing. And God says, take that off. Take his iniquity away. Put on clean vestments. Now, I got a whole lot more from Paul that we're not going to get to. But it, Alistair Begg says this in regards to this text. He says, One of the great onslaughts of the evil one is to get us to look at ourselves, to get us to look in. Satan wants to say, look in. You sinned. I saw it. I see it. It's right there. Judgment's coming. You're a fake. You can have no assurance. Yeah, I know all Christians sin, but not like you do. There is no hope for you. Right? Alistair says, Satan says, look in. Look at yourself. But in regards to Christ's righteousness, here's what he says. I no longer have to believe myself. <laughs> Do you ever have self-condemning thoughts? Alistair Begg says you put, put on the righteousness of Christ. You no longer have to believe yourself. Isn't that good news? He says I no longer have to boast about myself. I no longer have to rest in myself. I no longer have to be dishonest about myself and pretend to be better than I really am. And so he says, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord, who is our righteousness. William Gooch says, when I look upon myself, I see nothing but emptiness and weakness. But when I look upon Christ, I see nothing but fullness and sufficiency. 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Put on the belt of truth. Christian, what's he saying? What he's saying is, is Christian, remember who you are. Fight the fight of faith. When the accuser comes and says, look at that sin, say, yeah, that's right. That's how actually helpful. That is sin. Now I can repent of that. And have you forgotten that my older brother is Jesus Christ, the divine warrior, who you came at in the temptation, in the wilderness and in the garden, and you lost to him, Satan. And he will throw you in the lake of fire. That's what it means to put on the breastplate of righteousness. Does it mean live a righteous life? Well, if, if it fundamentally means that, I don't get how that helps me before Satan. Satan comes and I don't do it good enough. But one of the fruits of putting on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness is you begin to be conformed more and more into the image of Christ. So unbeliever, if you're here today and you know that you've never savingly put your trust in Christ, you've been trusting in your own sufficiency. One more verse from Isaiah 64.6. says, we've all become like one who is unclean. All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf in our iniquity in our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Your best deeds, according to this, is like filthy rags. If your hope is, well, if there is a God and I stand before Him, at least I'm better than the next guy. Will you take those good deeds and you present those before God? What are they? They're filthy rags. And by the grace of God, you're still sucking air and you're still alive, and you just heard the Gospel preached to you. And this righteousness that comes to you is a foreign righteousness that doesn't come by being good. It comes from faith. It's a righteousness from God. Not from myself, is the way Paul puts it. And if you say, my only hope is having Jesus' righteousness in my account. And you believe that by faith, you repent of your sin, recognize who you really are, Christ will save you. This right here, I face the holy God in and of myself. Guess what my grade is? My grade is an F. Guess what? Death is undefeated except for Christ. Which means I'm going to face Christ, my Creator. I'm going to get the final grade. What do I earn if I get an F? The wages of sin is death. That's what I get paid. Separation from God in hell. So I'm standing there in line. This is my report card. Filthy clothes on. And I think, what's my only hope? I think like Job. If only there was a mediator. If only there was someone to come. 
And then you feel a tap on the shoulder. And it's Jesus Christ. And Jesus comes and He says, Hey Sam, let me see that report card. Do you realize what I've done for you? Do you realize that I came for sinners like you? I didn't come for those who think they're good. I came for those who know this is what they get. Do you believe me? Do you believe that I got an A+, plus, that I never sinned, that I lived the perfect life? And I say, I believe, help my unbelief, I have no hope, I'm going before God. And he says, alright, you give me yours, you take mine, you get rewarded for my life, I'll take the punishment for yours. Put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. Christ takes off my filthy robe, puts it on Himself, stands before a holy God, takes my punishment. He gives me His perfect life, those 33 years living perfectly under the law that I get rewarded for. That's called grace. And that's why it was a stumbling block to the Jews. You want to know why? The Jews thought they were good. And so they hated the idea of grace. Believer, when Satan comes to tempt me to despair, we have a song, don't we? It goes like this. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. <laughs> upward I look and see him there. That's putting on his righteousness. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Behold Him there, the risen Lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased with His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. It's like I'm inside Him. With Christ my Savior and my God. 